For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. We're going to be looking at Daniel 8, verses 1 through 25, which I entitled, Two Remarkable Prophecies or Predictions. And um, that becomes self-evident as we look at this passage. Now, <clears throat> why don't we just begin in Daniel 1, or 8, verse 1 through uh, 14, and we'll just read through our passage and then maybe try to interpret it. During the third year of Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, saw another vision following the one that had already appeared to me. It was a vision. It, in this vision, I was at the fortress of Susa in the province of Elam, standing beside the Ulai River. As I looked up, I saw a ram with two long horns standing beside the river. One of the horns was longer than the other, even though it had grown later than the other one. The ram butted everything out of its way to the west, the north, the south, and no one could stand against him or help his victims. He did as he pleased, and he became very great. While I was watching, suddenly a male goat appeared from the west, crossing the land so swiftly that he didn't even touch the ground. This goat, which had one very large horn between its eyes, headed toward the two-horned ram that I had seen standing behind the, beside the river, rushing at him in rage. The goat charged furiously at the ram, struck him, breaking off both its horns. Now the ram was helpless, and the goat knocked him down and trampled him. No one could rescue the ram for the goats, from the goat's power. Okay. Now I'm sure um, some of you who are new here probably are looking at your friend who brought you and think, thinking to yourself, you know, I thought you said you're going to bring me to this incredible prophecy, and yet uh, I could have just stayed home and dropped some LSD <laughs> instead of listening to this crazy stuff, right? Well, luckily, this imagery that Daniel presents us with, he actually explains its meaning later in the, in the passage. Let's try to make our way back through this. Starting in verse 3 and 4, Daniel says, as, as I looked up, I saw a ram with two long horns standing beside the river. One of the horns was longer than the other, even though it had grown later than the other one. So there are two long horns on this ram. And note the similarity between the two horns here with this ram and the two shoulders of the bear that we read about in chapter 7. You know, one uh, shoulder was actually raised above the other. And in this case, we see that one horn actually protrudes further than the other one. And this, I think, fits the kingdom of Media Persia pretty well which we've argued throughout our book here in Daniel. Also, the ram butting every, everything out of its way to the west, north, and to the south really accurately depicts the media Persian conquest of the surrounding nations. So, we would identify this as the media Persian empire that came after the Babylonian empire. And just in case there was any question about this, in Daniel 8, verse 20, Daniel clearly states, the two-horned ram represents the kings of Media and Persia. So we're not left just guessing what this actually means. Then you have this male goat 
that appears from the west, crossing the land so swiftly that it didn't even touch the ground. And this goat had one very large horn protruding between its eyes. And it says that this two-horned ram, or that this goat was approaching this two-horned ram with rage. Now, again, we argued in previous weeks that this accurately fits Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire, and that this goat swiftly moving actually describes uh, Alexander the Great's conquest of really the known world at the time where he, in um, 333, began a campaign and in 10 years conquered really the known world from Greece all the way to the Indus Valley in India. And at the conclusion of that, he actually died. So that would fit this male goat that crossed the land swiftly, that didn't even touch the ground. Um, So we would say that this large horn represents Alexander the Great. Verse 7 gives us a little more detail about this goat, that he charged furiously at the ram, struck him, breaking off both his horns, and then the ram was helpless and trampled underfoot. This, again, fits Alexander the Great's campaign against the media Persians in... Um, his campaign, he actually defeated them in three decisive battles. Then in verse 8, the goat became very powerful, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off. In the large horn's place grew four prominent horns pointing in the four directions of the earth. And we also argued in previous weeks that these four horns represented the remaining kingdoms that actually came out of Alexander's conquest. At the end of his conquest, he was on his deathbed, and they asked him, so who do you want to rule in your place once you're gone? And he famously said, give my kingdom to the greatest. So his four prominent generals actually divided up his kingdom and ruled them separately, and that became the Macedonian Empire. And we looked at this chart last week showing the four generals and how they actually divided up the four kingdoms, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, Seleucus, and Cassander, divided Alexander's kingdom into the kingdom of Bithynia, Egypt, Syria, and Macedonia. Now, one of the real interesting things about these kingdoms was that Ptolemy's and Seleucus's kingdom actually um, ended up fighting over Israel over the course of, you know, a couple hundred years because Palestine actually represents a pretty important trade route. And so these two kingdoms actually gained control of Israel back and forth over several years. And again, just in case there was any question about the identity of this goat, Daniel says the shaggy male goat represents the king of Greece and the large horn between his eyes represents the first king of the uh, Greek empire. The four prominent horns that replace the one large horn show that the Greek empire will break into four kingdoms, but none as great as the first. So we're not left guessing here. We're not like, 
trying to embed our own interpretation, Daniel actually explains to us the meaning of this dream that he has as vision. So, okay, let's try to put together what we've learned tonight alongside what we've learned in the last few weeks. Daniel chapter 2, we talked about this dream Nebuchadnezzar has, the king of Babylon, and he sees this incredible statue made of, you know, four different types of material. And Daniel explains that these represent different kingdoms. The kingdom of Babylon, Persia, Macedonia, Rome, and then a future kingdom that's actually related to Rome. And then we saw in Daniel chapter 7, these different beasts again correspond with this statue and its composite parts, and that it represents these different kingdoms. Now we could add these two, the ram, which represents Media Persia, and then the goat, which represents the Greek or Macedonian empire. So I hope if you've been with us, you're starting to see this incredible matrix of prophecies that are coming together that give us a picture of these future events that will take place. Okay, let's go back to Daniel 8, verse 9. Then from one of the prominent horns came a small horn whose power grew very great. It extended toward the south and the east and toward the glorious land of Israel. Its power reached to the heavens where it attacked the heavenly army throwing some of the heavenly beings and some of the stars to the ground and trampling them. It even challenged the commander of heaven's army by canceling the daily sacrifices offered to him and by destroying his temple. The army of heaven was restrained from responding to this rebellion. So the daily sacrifice was halted and the truth was overthrown or thrown down and the horn succeeded in everything that it did. Then I heard two holy ones talking to each other One of them asked, how long will the events of this vision last? How long will the rebellion that causes desecration stop the daily sacrifices? How long will the temple and heaven's army be trampled on? The other replied, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the temple will be made right again. So there you have the rest of the prophecy. I think it raises the question, who is this small horn that Daniel refers to? Now, again, some of you might be a little bit confused because you haven't been with us through this whole series, but in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel describes this little horn that appears on one of the beasts. And there are some striking similarities between the small horn that he talks about here in chapter 8 and the little horn that he talks about in chapter 7. First, both utter great boasts Um, Secondly, they oppress and war with God's people. We read later in chapter 8, verse 23 through 25, at the end of their rule, that is Alexander's generals, a fierce king, a master of intrigue will rise to power. He will destroy powerful leaders and devastate the holy people. He will even take on the prince of princes in battle, but he will be broken, though not by human power. So apparently, this small horn in Daniel chapter 8 will actually oppress God's people, just like the little horn that we learned about in chapter 7. Thirdly, Daniel associates both figures with the end times. 
in verses 17 and, 18 and 19, in our passage, Daniel says, you must understand that the events that you've seen in your vision relate to the time of the end. I'm here to tell you what, you will, happen, what will happen later in the time of wrath. And what you have seen pertains to the very end. So both of these figures relate to the end times somehow. And also, they're both small horns, okay? We can't overlook that important similarity. Now, there are some differences between these two. First of all, they emerge from different kingdoms. Remember, in Daniel chapter 7, it appears that the little horn actually emerges from the empire of Rome, whereas in this case, it's very clear that this small horn actually emerges from the kingdom of Greece. So that seems to be very different. Secondly, Daniel uses two different Hebrew words for small and little. Now, if Daniel wanted to equate these two without any question, it would be very easy for him to use the same Hebrew word to describe both. And yet he uses two different Hebrew words to describe these horns. Third, their period of dominance over Israel actually differs in duration. We, we learned last week that this little horn that comes out of this future kingdom related to the Roman Empire will rule for time, times, and half a time, which is idiomatic for three and a half years. But in this case, we find out that this guy actually uh, rules um, you know, for a different period, for 2,300 er, days which is a little bit different. So they're similar in some ways, but also different. I think the person who fits the small horn like a glove in history is this guy, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And um, he was the Seleucid king from 175 to 164 B.C., he actually seized control of the Seleucid throne um, through intrigue. We find out that he actually um, was related to Seleucus, but wasn't the heir apparent. And so what he did was he actually declared himself co-regent with um, one of Seleucus' sons, who was an infant at the time, and then killed him several years later. And this actually fits with the description that Daniel gives us of the small horn in verse 23. At the end of their rule, when, the, when their sin is at its height, a fierce king, a master of intrigue, will rise to power. That would fit this guy Antiochus IV Epiphanes pretty well. Also, he persecuted the Jews based on religious grounds. This guy was a fierce anti-Semite. Um, he hated the Jewish people. And every time he got defeated or felt frustrated, he would go to Israel and actually take it out on the Jewish people. Uh, he canceled the daily sacrifices in the temple for 2,300 days. And this describes when he actually killed Onias III in 171 BC. And he actually stopped sacrifices in the temple for about six and a half years. Until finally, in 164, 
the temple was actually restored and rededicated. Um, during that time, he erected statues of the Greek gods in the temple and worshipped these gods in them. Um, you know, to the Jewish person, the thought of someone offering sacrifices to a, an, an unknown god or to a foreign god in God's temple would have been really bad. It would have been incredibly grievous. And these events actually sparked the Maccabean revolt. This guy named Judas Maccabeus, um, who happened to be the son of one of the priests in Israel, actually formed a militia and managed to actually defeat the Seleucid army using guerrilla tactics. And, and today, um, the Jewish people celebrate Hanukkah as a commemoration of the rededication of the temple upon Judas Maccabees' successful revolt. So what you have here is really an incredible prophecy about an event that took place or an, that was fulfilled hundreds of years later. So I think it still raises the question, though, what, why does this guy Antiochus seem connected to the end of days? Well, it turns out he committed what Daniel calls the transgression that causes horror, or in some translations, the abomination of desolation. And this is a specific type of abomination where somebody either enters into the temple and worships another god or declares himself to be God. In the case of Antiochus, Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, tells us that Antiochus actually came into the temple upon one of his uh, sacrifices and actually took a pig and slaughtered it, took some of its blood and splashed it onto the altar of sacrifice. Now, if you know anything about Jewish dietary laws, a pig is like one of the dirtiest animals uh, you could possibly imagine. And so this would have been totally defiling. And it turns out uh, in verse 13, uh, Daniel tells us, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifices apply while the transgression that causes horror so as to apply both the holy place and the host to be trampled? So he points out that this small horn commits this violation, this abomination. And also the little horn in Daniel 7 also commits a similar abomination. We also read in chapter 9, verse 27, that this little horn, this future world ruler, will actually confirm a covenant with the Jewish people for seven years. And in the middle of this seven-year period, he'll actually put an end to the sacrifice and offering and he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end is decreed and poured out on him. And then Jesus, you know, uh, hundreds of years later, after Daniel wrote in Matthew 24 at concerning the end times, says, when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand that those who are in Judea need to flee to the mountains. He says, this is the thing that's going to indicate to you that the time is coming for my return. And you better flee. You better get out of there. Because there's going to be a war 
that threatens to wipe out all of humanity. And Paul, in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3 and 4, describes this individual, the little horn, as the man of lawlessness. And he says he will exalt himself. He will even sit in the temple of God, claiming himself to be God. So this guy's actually going to take things a step further. He's going to actually come into the temple and declare himself to be God. So... What we have here is what you, what theologians call a double reference prophecy, you know, where the prophet is looking out at a vision or a dream, and he sees an event or a person that happens to also mirror a future event or person. In this case, we see that the, the nearer event actually represents Antiochus Epiphanes, whom he calls the small horn. But then this also becomes sort of a prototype of this future world ruler called the little horn, who has a very similar career to Antiochus. So, okay, you know, imagine if you were, you know, sixth century Jewish person in Babylon, right? You've been through an incredible war where Babylon actually lays siege to your city or Jerusalem. They conquered your city. They killed most of the inhabitants and then drug off most of the remaining people into Babylon. And afterward, they basically demolished the temple and the entire city. So you've been there for a number of years and you're sitting around the water cooler with your Jewish buddies And you're saying, man, did you hear that newest installment from Daniel, one of his uh, newest prophecies? Man, it's far out. (laughs) He's suggesting that at one point we are going to be regathered to our land in Israel and that the temple will be standing again. And, um, you know, it would really be, it would be a stretch to think that this would ever happen in light of the situation that they were in. And yet, today, you know, we don't look at this as a prophecy. We look at this as history because these events have actually been fulfilled through the life of Antiochus, 400 years after Daniel wrote this prophecy. Now, you know, the famous atheist Douglas Kruger wrote a book called What is Atheism? And he tackles this concept of predictive prophecy. Obviously, he's a critic of that. And he gives a number of criteria for what would be a legitimate prophecy. First of all, he says, the prophecy must be clear and must contain sufficient detail to make its fulfillment by a wide variety of possible events unlikely. So yeah, it would have to be clear, right? It can't be cryptic. You know, I remember shortly after the 9-11 events, um, the History Channel had tons of different shows talking about how this famous guy, Nostradamus, predicted the 9-11 attacks. And here's one of the supposed prophecies about the 9-11 attacks. This is from Nostradamus' um, book, from, um, and it's a Century One Quatrain 87. 
He says, earth-shaking fire from the center of the earth will cause the new city to shake. Two great rocks will war for a long time, and then Arethusa will, will redden a new river. Dang. Super compelling, right? What they would say is that this center of the earth represents the world trade center, right? Because it's sort of like the center of finance. Then the new city, I mean, that's obviously talking about New York City. I mean, come on. And then the two rocks, I mean, those are ambiguous. Those could refer to the Twin Towers. It could refer to Islam and Christianity. We're not really clear. And then Arethusa, that's probably an anagram, you know, where you could take a word and sort of mix it up into a different word. And that probably describes some future event that hasn't taken place yet. And one of the really odd things is that there are a number of different interpretations about this very same prophecy. So not everybody agrees that this refers to the 9-11 attacks. Here's another one that allegedly refers to the 9-11 attacks. At 45 degrees, the sky will burn, fire to approach the great new city. In an instant, a great scattered flame will leap up when no one will uh, want to demand proof of the Normans. Okay. So what they would say is that 45 degrees refers to 45 degrees of latitude, which touches the northernmost tip of New York State. Okay. Again, the great new city obviously refers to New York City. And then, you know, the scattered flames leaping up refers to the explosions when the, the planes crashed into the Twin Towers. Now, there are a number of problems with this. First of all, okay, the Twin Towers were actually located on the 40th degree of latitude not the 45th degree. To give you an understanding of how off that is, the 45th degree of latitude would be just north of Toronto, Canada. Okay, so this is hundreds of miles off of where it needs to be. And again, I think there's a lot of ambiguity about this great new city. It's not clear what the new city refers to. That could be a lot of different things. So I think that prophecies like Nostradamus would fail this criteria of clarity. By comparison, though, when you look at the prophecy we just read in Daniel chapter 8, it's clear as day. I mean, some of, the, some of the metaphors that he describes may be unclear, but he gives us a very clear interpretation in the context of the passage later on. He clearly states this is referring to the kingdom of Greece. This other image refers to the kingdom of Media Persia. So it's unmistakable. We're not left guessing. Second, the event that can fulfill the prophecy must be unusual or unique. Again, the prophecy that Daniel lays out implies that the nation of Israel will actually be back in its land with a temple rebuilt. And it's very specific. In addition to the fact that he predict, predicted hundreds of years in advance the rise of the media Persian Empire as well as the Greek Empire. Third, the prophecy must be known to have been made before the event that is supposed to be fulfilled. That's obvious. And that's one of the reasons why many skeptical scholars 
Skeptics of the Bible actually argue that Daniel was written after Antiochus IV appeared on the scene in history. Because they just can't wrap their mind around the possibility that Daniel actually predicted this successfully. And yet we argued, I think, convincingly in Daniel chapter 2 that there are a number of converging pieces of evidence indicating that Daniel actually wrote this in the mid-500s B.C., when he purported to have written it. Fourth, the event foretold must not be the sort that could be a result of an educated guess, right? You know, you think about some of these psychics, right? Psychic hotline, if you call it up, they're like, a really jarring and important event will take place sometime next year. You're like, dang. (laughs) You know, that could fit a lot of different things. Um, or, you know, that's like somebody saying, I predict that tomorrow there will be a catastrophic car accident within 270. I mean, that's very likely to happen, right? You know, it can't be the result of an educated guess. It needs to be very specific and very unusual. You know, back in 1982, I was um, three years old at the time. Okay, this, this movie, directed by Ridley Scott, um, was really uh, an amazing movie, sci-fi, now today, a cult classic. And Ridley Scott and the writers actually uh, tried to, to come up with an idea of what the year 2019 would look like. So this movie was actually set in 2019, in a couple years, right? So they had a number of predictions of what the future would look like. First of all, they envisioned privatized space colonies that most of the inhabitants of Earth would actually leave Earth by the year 2019 and occupy Mars and all these different planets. Today, there's a desire to do that. You know, a company is actually planning to launch its first space colony on Mars in 2024. Whether that's actually going to happen remains to be seen. So that didn't happen. Hover cars, okay? They thought that in 2019, cars would be flying. Today, um, we have driverless vehicles that can't really tell the difference between a mailbox and a middle schooler, right? (laughs) So turns out that didn't work. A little bit off on that. Third, you have, they predicted replicants. And these aren't like just robots. These are actually synthetic human beings made of biological material. And they actually passed the AI test, the the Turing test. Um, Today, our AI, um, none of it has passed the Turing test, um, let alone uh, have we seen anything like this. And so... You know, here are people who are really smart, probably knew a lot about technology, trying to forecast what the future would look like, and we're completely wrong. And finally, Kruger's criteria says that the event that fulfills the prophecy cannot be staged or the relevant circumstances manipulated by those aware of the prophecy in such a way as to intentionally cause the prophecy to be fulfilled. Well, In the case of Israel returning to its land, 
Obviously, Israel's fate wasn't in its own hands. It was in the hands of the kings, which were oppressing them. And remarkably, in 444 BC, King Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, actually gave the um, go-ahead to actually rebuild Jerusalem. And so, in the mid-400s, Israel, or the Jewish people actually occupied Israel. So that was a remarkable thing. Something that, you know, obviously they could not have staged. So what about the second part of Daniel's prophecy? Obviously this relates to some future figure who will arise, right? Now, okay, imagine sitting through a talk like this as a skeptic in the 1930s. Okay, you read a prophecy like Daniel chapter 8 and you're like, Israel regathered to the ancient land? You gotta be kidding me. We need to understand that in AD 70, Titus, the emperor, actually came into Jerusalem, stormed the city, and completely destroyed the city. Dispersed the people and actually tore down the temple. It's well documented. And so Israel had actually, the, 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 uh, Jerusalem had sat um, empty of, men, of any Jewish people for nearly 1,800 years. And so, you know, you imagine talking to somebody, a skeptic in the 30s, and, say, and saying to them, you know, Israel, they're going to actually come back to their land. They'd be like, you're crazy. There's no way that's going to happen. By this time, the diaspora had reached throughout Western and Eastern Europe into North America and into Africa. The Jewish people had been scattered throughout the world. Also, they'd probably say the Jews erecting the temple in Jerusalem, there's no way that's going to happen. I mean, they don't even occupy the land. How is that even possible? And yet today, it doesn't seem impossible. In fact, it seems possible and likely. Um, now, to make matters worse, there are a number of explicit prophecies about the regathering of Israel. Not referring to the first time, but to the second time. Look at Amos 9, verse 14 and 15, where the prophet says, I'll bring back my people Israel. They will rebuild the cities lying in rubble and settle down. They will plant vineyards and drink the wine they produce. They will grow orchards and eat the fruit they produce. I will plant them on their land and they will never again be uprooted from the land that I've given them, says the Lord your God. So you might be asking yourself, how do we know this isn't talking about the first regathering of Israel under Nehemiah and Ezra in the fifth century? Well, right here in verse 15, it says, I will plant them in their land and they will never again be uprooted. That can't be referring to the first regathering of Israel because the Romans stormed the city and destroyed it again. And just to give us a, a little bit more confidence that this is what it's referring to, in Isaiah 11, verse 11 and 12, the prophet says, In that day the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to bring back the remnant of his people, those who remain in Assyria, Egypt, Southern Egypt, Ethiopia, Elam, Babylonia, Hamath, and all the distant coastlands. 
If this was referring to the Jews residing in Babylon, it wouldn't make any sense because they were only going in one direction. In this case, they were coming from all parts of the earth to regather in Israel. Not to mention, he says, I will reach out my hand a second time. Not the first time, the second time. You know, you can imagine somebody who's sitting there in the 1930s, Israel doesn't even exist as a nation state, thinking to yourself, this is impossible. That would be like, you know, if somebody today, you know, uncovered a prophecy from 300 years ago that stated the Europeans will come to this area called the Americas and they will conquer the native people and drive them out of their land. But then in due time, after several hundred years, those native people will rise again and basically banish the inhabitants of this place called the Americas. You'd be like, no way. That ain't going to happen. Well, this is even more unlikely of happening. That a nation that didn't exist for nearly 1,800 years comes back together and forms a nation state? Well, turns out it did happen. In 1948, in the aftermath of World War II, the United Nations actually parceled up Palestine, creating a portion for the the Arabs and a portion for the Jewish people. And as a result of the mistreatment throughout Europe under Nazi Germany, millions of Jewish people started flooding into the land of Israel. And in 1948, in May, they declared independence as a nation state. Incredible. Mark Twain, the famous writer, actually um, comments about the miraculous resilience of the Jewish people. And to my knowledge, he's not a believer. He was probably agnostic. And yet he says this. If statistics are right, the Jews constitute but 1% of the human race. It suggests a nebulous dim puff of stardust lost in the blaze of the Milky Way. The Egyptian, the Babylonian, the Persian rose, filled the planet with sound and splendor. They faded to dream stuff and passed away. The Greek and the Romans followed, made a vast noise, and now they're gone. Other people have sprung up, held their torch high for a time, but it burned out, and they sit in the twilight now or have vanished. The Jew saw them all, beat them all, is now what he always was, exhibiting no decadence, no infirmities of age, no weakening of his parts, no slowing of his energies, no dulling of his alert and aggressive mind. All things are mortal, but the Jew, all other forces pass, but he remains. What is the secret of his immortality? Well, this was written in Harper's Magazine, 1899. I'm sure he would have been shocked. His, his jaw would have just dropped to the floor if he was there in 1948 to witness that. You know, really, when you think about these ancient peoples from biblical times, like the Amorites or the Philistines or the Moabites, have you ever run into a Moabite? 
You're like, hey, you're a Moabite, aren't you? Talk to me in your Moabite language. Where are they? They don't exist. And yet the Jewish people who have endured for 4,000 years under the harshest persecution, nearly extinguished, they still survive. Why? Is it his explanation because they're so resilient? They're so incredible? The biblical explanation would be that it was God preserving them in his sovereignty because he had a plan. Now let's match this with Kruger's criterion. The prophecy must be clear. Obviously, when you look at Amos 9 and Isaiah 11, it's clear what he's referring to, right? The event needs to be unusual and unique. You know, how many times in human history have people decided, you know what, we're going to give these people a parcel of land and try to round up all the people who associate themselves with this land from every part of the earth. Can you, can you think of, uh, it, you know, can we count it on two hands? Can we count it on one hand? Indeed, this is the only time in human history something like this has ever happened. The only time. Number three, it has to have been made before the event. That's pretty easy. Even the most skeptical scholars believe that the Old Testament was fully formed in the second century AD. Still, over a thousand years before this event was fulfilled. Fourth, the event foretold must not be the sword that could be result, a result of an educated guess. You know, it's interesting, even the smartest people couldn't even envision this. Louis Burkhoff, a, a brilliant Christian thinker in his systematic theology, wrote concerning the passages about the regathering of Israel, this literalism lands interpreters in all kinds of absurdities, for it involves the future restoration of all the former historical conditions of Israel's life. The altered situation would make it necessary for all the nations to visit Jerusalem from year to year in order to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. How could that possibly happen? As he's writing in 1939. I'm sure he would have been shocked in 1948 to find that the very thing he wrote about took place. And finally, it can't be staged or manipulated by those who are aware of the prophecy. It's interesting, when you think about the Zionist movement, many of the leading figures of the Zionist movement were not religious Jewish people. In fact, many of them were probably agnostic. This was more of a political movement than it was a religious movement. In, in, in fact, when you look at Israel today, 50% of, of Jews in Israel claim to be atheists the largest number of atheists per capita in the world. So they're not looking at the Bible and saying, oh, this is about us. We should fulfill this. They don't care about that. So what conclusions can we draw from this? I think, first of all, God gave us biblical prophecy to show he's real. You know, if you're here tonight, maybe you came as a skeptic. You know, God understands that we have a lot of questions. 
that we have lots of doubts. We're inundated with lots of information that claims the Bible is a complete hoax, that it's trash, that there's only slivers of historical significance actually left in the Bible, but the rest, it's all made up. And yet passages like this tend to restore your confidence that maybe God is real. In fact, in Isaiah 42, verse 8 and 9, God declares, I am the Lord, that's my name. I won't give my glory to anyone else or share my praise with carved idols. Everything I prophesied has come true, and I pro- now I prophesy it again. I tell you the future before it happens. God knew that this was his plan all along to show skeptics, to show people who question God's existence that he's real. Secondly, prophecy gives us evidence to bolster our faith. You know, I think some of us here are maybe newer Christians. We're learning things about our faith. God provided this sort of material in the Bible to help build up your faith so that when moments of crisis arise in your walk with God, which, which it's going to happen, you can at least stand on something objective. And finally, fulfilled prophecy gives us confidence in God's written word. Some of, the, some of the things that God calls us to do, they're difficult to listen to. They're difficult to trust. And yet when you see incredible predictions like this fulfill, it gives you confidence that you can listen to what God says and trust his written word to be true. Now, if you're here, and maybe this has piqued your interest, um, there's an even more detailed prophecy in Ezekiel 37 that the complimentary book we offer, Discovering God, actually lays out in detail. So if you're new here tonight, we want to offer you that gift, and uh, maybe you could take a look at that. Yeah, Lord, I remember um, hearing a prophecy taught like this um, as a pretty young Christian, and I remember just um, my mind just being completely blown by it. And um, thanks that you include things like this in the Old Testament. Uh, thanks that we don't have to just, you know, rely on blind faith, but that you give us uh, abundant evidence. And um, I pray that this would uh, spark an interest in us investigating this more and uh, doing some study on our own to see what you have to say. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.